Hello, it's Kamal Ahmed here, and I'm here to tell you about Energized. The brand new podcast, Intelligent Squared, is launching in partnership with Ipadrola. The climate crisis is the most pressing issue of our time. Temperatures are set to rise more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in the next two decades, an increase that will cause irreversible damage to our planet. But is there still hope? If humans are to blame for climate change, then we must also provide the solutions. And that's where Energized comes in. Join me as I bring together experts and policymakers to delve deep into the key issues at the heart of the global drive towards net zero and the innovations that promise to accelerate the energy transition and transform the way we live. Just search Energized wherever you get your podcasts. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, Visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Intelligence Squared, in partnership with the Nature Conservancy, has brought together some of the world's leading conservation experts, along with voices from the world of finance and industry, to ask whether working in tandem with nature is the soundest investment that business can make. Let me tell you how things are going to work. We're going to hear from our speakers. Each could speak for hours on end, and they would fascinate you, but they've been given a mere three or four minutes uh, to tell you who they are uh, and what their take is on this question, the relationship between nature uh, and capitalism. When we've heard their initial take, then I'm going to get a little bit of a conversation going uh, between them. Then we're going to open it up, the most important part of the evening. We're going to open it up to you to ask your questions, to make your points. I'll bring the panel in uh, during that conversation, uh, and then we'll bring them in right at the end before we, 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 we finish off at 8 o'clock. So uh, it's going to be a really... A fascinating uh, conversation. Uh, let me tell you about the speakers uh, in a turn. So our first speaker is Peter Kariva, who's chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy and co-founder of the Natural Capital Project, a pioneering partnership between the Nature Conservancy, Stanford University, and WWF. And I think each speaker deserves a bit of encouragement from you. So please welcome Peter Kariva. Yeah. No, that was, sorry, a symbolic pause. Peter did fly in yesterday, so uh, you, you are with us on your video. I flew in from Seattle, the great Northwest, and I'm a, a scientist, a biologist, a research biologist. I grew up loving nature. For the last six years of my life, I've been dedicated to this natural capital project, and what we do is we write models, models of ecosystems, models of ecosystems that that try to predict what are the consequences of choices businesses make, of choices governments make, of choices cities make, of choices school districts make, of choices consumers make, and what those choices mean 
for the balance of nature that we have left. And we don't just write the models, we write software, and it's meant to be open access. Anybody could use that software and start being a little bit smarter about how they use nature. Uh, we've done it in about two dozen projects all around the world, China, Mongolia, Chile, Colombia, U.S., all over the world, and we've learned a lot from it. And in the phrase of the great British poets, I don't care much for money, because money can't buy you love. <laughs> money can buy you nature. And so the take-home lesson that I've learned, and that my colleagues have learned, that this position that we started with, that quote that you started with, that adversarial quote, if business is an adversary of nature, nature doesn't stand a chance. And in the long run, business doesn't stand a chance. And so it's all about getting nature and business allied. I think our debate and discussion this night, tonight will be very much about how we do that, what are the mechanisms for doing that, and if we can get that right, both business and nature will thrive. And I think I'll turn it over to my colleagues for their opening. Thank you. Frank. Can I just ask you one question, Peter? As you've done your work, as you've explored this, have you become more or less optimistic about the possibility of business and nature working hand in hand? I've become much more optimistic, but I've also realized it's much more complicated and difficult than sort of the platitudes that we throw around. So uh, it's really, really hard. We have deep engagements with businesses, and it's, and it's not as simple as just saying the markets are going to solve our problems. And what's the hardest problem of all? Uh, the hardest problem of all is the short-termism of business. And I would say that the hardest problem is that, is that in a world where um, you know, stock turns over very fast, people are looking for really, really rapid prof profits, it's very difficult on those timescales for nature to return its profits and, its, and build its assets on a timescale that matters. Great. Thank you, Peter. Okay, our second speaker is Tony Juniper, Sustainability Advisor, former Executive Director of Friends of the Earth, author of What Nature Does for Britain, which I think is available outside. You'll sign it, won't you? They're already signed. Oh, very Save good. Time. And co-author. <laughs> and co-author with the Prince of Wales of Harmony, a new way of looking at our world. Please welcome Tony Juniper. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much indeed, Matthew. Um, I'm a conservationist, an environmentalist, uh, a naturalist. I've pursued those interests uh, for more than 30 years in a variety of, of different roles, uh, working as a, as a scientist, as a communicator, uh, trying to influence policy, and also, as Matthew said, as, as the director of Friends of the Earth in this country uh, for some years. For the last six or so years, I've been working more independently uh, as a writer. This book is published on Thursday, What Nature Does for Britain, uh, as an advisor to private sector companies, working with the University of Cambridge uh, and a program there on sustainability leadership and also helping the Prince of Wales with some of his sustainability initiatives. So I remain very much engaged in this, but more as an individual uh, rather than as an organisation uh, these days. I have to say, in the three decades that I've been involved with this particular cause, I, I think we have to mark some really quite important progress in, in legislation, in international agreements, in the level of engagement between the private sector and some of these questions, levels of public awareness. Our scientific knowledge is, is far advanced. 
So with all of that progress under our belt, why is it still the case that there is a rising concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, an ongoing rapid loss of biological diversity, the depletion of natural resources, intractable pollution problems in different parts of the world? The reason all of those things continue despite the progress, I would argue, is because we see environmental problems as environmental when, in fact, environmental problems are economic failures. And this is why I think this evening's discussion is so important, because the reason we still continue to act upon the science is because we've fallen victim to a mythology that tells us that looking after nature is the enemy of growth, competitiveness, and job creation. This is the argument we now have to win if we are to protect life on Earth and, indeed, human civilizations that depend upon it. And that's why I spend much of my time these days writing books like What Nature Does for Britain and Before It, What Has Nature Ever Done for Us?, unearthing this vast body of evidence that's being collected by TNC and others, showing how the human economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of ecology, not the other way around. Our economic system depends fundamentally on pillars of nature for it to exist. If we can understand that and embed that basic insight into how governments make choices and how businesses are run, then we will have a very bright future here on Earth, living as part of nature rather than the enemy of it. Thank you, Tony. Can I ask, Tony, if you talk to large corporations, they nearly always now have a pretty strong story about their sustainability record. And indeed, there are many chief executives of large corporations who seem to be personally passionate about this issue, but yet it doesn't seem to make difference at scale. What is the fundamental problem about, well, why is it that the good intentions of all these corporations don't seem to make a difference at the kind of global level? Two problems, I would say, in addition to the short-termism that's already been mentioned. Problem number one is that it is still a small group of pioneers, Unilever, B&Q, Marks and Spencers. Uh, In their sectors, they stand out, but for the main part, in most business sectors, it is still not the majority that are moving on this. And in an open market situation, if you take more action than your competitors, there will come a point when you start to lose business share, lose money, and you go out of business. So there is a laggardly break, if you will, on progress. The other thing is the policy environment and the extent to which politicians are not elevating the playing field. And if the leadership that's being demonstrated by some companies can be backed by policy choices that support that from government, I think we will see an acceleration towards scale very quickly. Great, thank you very much. Our third speaker is Jeremy Oppenheim, who's leader of McKinsey's global practice on sustainability and resource productivity. In 2014, he took a year's sabbatical to head up the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate, whose report, Better Growth, Better Climate, has been described as stern too. Please welcome Jeremy Oppenheim. So thank you all very much, and I'm, of course, at risk of agreeing too much with the people who have already spoken. Um, I'm a development economist by uh, background. I spent 10 years working in some of the poorest countries in the world, and and that very much frames my view of the whole debate about economic development, growth, conservation. It has to start with people, right? For me, it starts with people and, and addressing the root causes of poverty, and, and that then needs to interact with how we approach questions of, of our ecology and of nature. Um, so that's my starting point and my starting frame. I do come from the camp which is that it is an utterly false dichotomy to describe capitalism as being in, in competition with, with nature or with conservation. I think it's unhelpful. Um, what we know, what, here's, here's some of the things that we know. 
Right? We know that actually economic growth is a good thing for nature over time. There will be periods in the development of any country where that economic growth will um, um, hurt nature and will lead to the degradation of nature. But actually, as countries become wealthier, the quality of nature and our ability to protect nature and to fund it goes dramatically up. So if we want to protect nature, we will need economic growth. And that may involve, for some countries, a period during which nature, their natural capital de deteriorates. We need to put prices in place. If you want to protect nature, in some way we're going to have to price it. And if we don't price it, do not be surprised at the consequences. Um, so the question of how we price it is a really important and subtle debate, and we will get to that, I, I'm sure, this evening. But unpriced, we leave it unprotected. We need brands. Companies that have brands have reputations to protect, and they have reputations to protect globally. So the more that we have a capitalist system that creates highly valuable brands that are susceptible to the pressure of civil society, the more we will protect nature. Um, and we need technology, because the only way in a, in a planet that is likely to have 9 billion or more people that will be looking for the lifestyles that everybody here enjoys, and remember that this is a very privileged kind of Western setting that we're holding this conversation in. But if you want to have a world in which the other 7 to 8 billion people can aspire to have these kinds of conversations with this quality of life, then we need technology, and that will only scale, as far as we can tell, through capitalism. Because without it, we will never have a chance of protecting nature in the kind of world that, that we are setting ourselves up for. But capitalism will only do its job in this respect, as in any other aspect of life, if we get policies right and if civil society plays its role in acting you know, as, a, as a source of conscience, not just for business, but also for the policymakers. Thank you, Jeremy. C can I ask a question about, you, you talked about wise regulation, and, and, and uh, as you say, when we, we see reform, it's often some combination of regulation, uh, innovation, but why is it that it seems to be that the voice of business, the collective voice of business through business organisations and lobbying organisations always seems to be averse to regulation? And can you see that changing? So I don't think it is always averse to regulation. I think it is sometimes averse to regulation. Um, and and um, so, there are, so I think we should be very careful before we homogenise business into one you know, undifferentiated community which is resolutely averse to any kind of regulation. Many leading companies want to see more regulation because, in fact, it makes the market work better for them rather than worse for them. Right? A regulated market will typically, in, in truth, be good for incumbents. So you will find a whole host of views across the business world, but what you will find, and I will be absolutely clear about this, is that most lobbying organizations from the business world our lowest common denominator organizations, and they absolutely um, play a race to the bottom game. Um, and that's unfortunately their business model, and they are, on the whole, not a force for good. But there are many progressive companies, and I'm seeing more and more of them, walk away from some of the worst of the lobbying organizations. And we've seen Unilever leave Business Europe, and we're seeing other companies, really respected companies, either leaving or, or at the edge of leaving 
the worst of the lobbying organizations. And one of the things we should absolutely celebrate and encourage our progressive leading companies to do is to get out of those degrading organizations and show a proper voice of what progressive business can do. Great, thank you very much. It's very interesting as the conversation rolls on to see where we think the particular pressure points are. It's very interesting. I didn't think that would come up at this stage, Jeremy, but you're identifying one, which is the way in which lobbying organizations compete, as it were, to be as as you put it, lowest common denominator as possible. Fascinating. Uh, our fourth speaker is Lucy Siegel, um, ethical living columnist for The Observer and author t- of To Die For, Is Fashion Wearing Out the World? Is that the one outside? Yes. Great. Uh, and Green Living in the Urban Jungle. Please welcome Lucy Siegel. Well, good evening, everybody. I'm not sure Green Living in the Urban Jungle is still in print, and if it is, it probably shouldn't be, so don't worry about that one. Was it, was it printed on recycled paper? Oh, yeah. Okay. It's been pulped, I think, which is good. Um, uh, well, actually, that leads me into what I was going to say. My, um, my own... Uh, you can't really use the word journey anymore, can you, without sounding like an idiot? Okay, so my own, <laughs> my own experience of green issues um, has travelled quite a distance. So I started out with Green Living in the Urban Jungle, which was very, very enthusiastic and thought that consumers, because I mainly write, we're all consumers, right, and we'd rather be on that side of the fence. You know, that's, that's the preferable side to, to be on. Um, consumers could change the world, maybe by making little lifestyle changes. How wrong I was, obviously. Um, but I have been on a fascinating, or I've had a fascinating experience. But ladies and gentlemen, I do feel a bit used, frankly. Uh, I have bought into the idea previously that uh, corporations, the corporate world, the global economy, if you like, was going to uh, spearhead this global sustainable revolution that we so badly needed. And I've been let down. Uh, And now I realise that I've been let down because nature and business are just not compatible bedfellows in any way. I think that business flirts with nature, but it never really takes it any further. And I will stop using these horrible sort of dating metaphors in a minute. I don't know why I'm expressing myself in this way. But I just think there has been... uh, uh, Underneath it all, I think that what is good for business isn't necessarily good for nature. And if there's a note of bitterness, it's through my own experience and my own observations, particularly working uh, with the fashion industry and looking at uh, a textile supply chain. And that's important to me because it's a full-spectrum industry. So it goes from the raw fibre right the way through into stores, into fashion week, into the kind of glamorous stuff that we all see. So I feel like I have seen a really good spread of a sector that encompasses quite a lot of things. Uh, We've heard some of the shortcomings of business, if you like, uh, and those are some hints as to why I don't think it's uh, a a useful um, ally for nature. But nature also has its own uh, weird uh, idiosyncratic behaviour. It's chaotic, you know. In the rainforest, a tree may fall, it may take out other species as it goes down, and then other trees will fill, will, will grow and fill that light. And that's something that's unpredictable and chaotic. And that's not something that business can work with. 
that's not something that corporations, as they're set up, can really, really work with, unless they're incredibly nature-centric, which I don't think many of them are. Um, I think that natural habitats at this point have already been defined um, to some extent by economic interests. And this is the real baseline that we're working from. I think a more genuine proposition is we've shaped nature, it looks like this, so how much now will corporations agree to save? And that's uh, probably a less uh, poetic way of looking at it. But I think we're in a power play, essentially. Nature that defies the logic of business... Uh, and business that operates for the short term and has different drivers, which can never be uh, nature-centric. And ultimately, I think it's a bit of a failure of all of us when it comes to conservation. I don't think that we've managed to prove that nature is worthy of public subsidy and and public investment, and now we've had to go to to corporations. I think that's a pretty sad position to be in. Lucy, uh, I saw some research a few months ago which was very hopeful on page one and very depressing on page two. Page one was how many people said that environmental issues matter to them as consumers. Page two was where that, li- where that featured in the list of other priorities they had, for example, quality and cost and things mm-hmm. like that. Is the problem that consumer power doesn't really matter, or is it that we as consumers haven't really prioritised environmental issues in our choices? Well, consumers, are, uh, their behaviour is very, very difficult to predict. So we know this. So you'll say one thing and you'll actually do another. So that happens for a variety of reasons. Um, and that's why those kind of surveys are always kind of problematic. But um, I don't think we can, we can expect the consumer to prioritise the environment above all, with, with all the other noise that they've got on. It's that thing, isn't it? When you go to the supermarket or whatever, or whatever and you've got two screaming kids with you, and you know, you've got like 10 minutes to get your stuff and get out, that point of purchase is a very bad place to try and have a conversation about the environment. Really, really bad place. <laughs> Some people obviously recognise exactly what you're <laughs> You know, you know, feel my pain. About. Thank you. Okay, last but not least, Nick Dearden, who's director of the World, De- World Development Movement, which campaigns in the UK on global justice issues. He's formerly the director of the Jubilee Debt Campaign uh, and corporate, he was corporate campaign manager at Amnesty International UK. He's a regular contributor to The Guardian. Please welcome Nick Dearden. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, We've got a new name, actually. We're called um, Global Justice Now, but only for a week. So uh, we were called the World Development Movement for 40 years. Um, But we changed our name last week, and that's that's to reflect the fact that primarily we're a social justice organisation, but working on global issues. And so I wouldn't come here and say and describe myself really as a a conservationist, but as somebody who's very interested in um, social justice. And I think the thing that we found in the last 10, 20, or probably even more years for people who are very far-sighted is you can't have social justice without um, taking the environment into account and without environmental um, justice as well. Um, We work on um, a number of aspects of the global economy. We're currently working to try and stop a very big trade deal called TTIP between the US and the EU. Um, We've worked to try to stop people uh, speculating on food derivatives, um, which um, uh, pushes the price of food up. Um, and we're also working on a whole climate campaign around um, who controls our, uh, our energy resources. And I would say, fundamentally, that's what most concerns me, is, is, is who is, of course, the depletion of the world's resources, but how that fits into who controls those resources. Because we don't just... I mean, I agree with an awful lot 
um, of, what, of what Lucy just said. And uh, uh, we don't live in a world where we, as individual little atoms, um, can, through our individual market choices, actually decide what happens. And we, still don't, we don't control those resources. And over the last 30, 40 years, we've seen an increasing monopolization of the world's resources in the hands of a tiny, tiny um, proportion of the world's population. And that era of deregulation has been an unprecedented disaster for the world's environment um, and for climate change. And I don't think it's a surprise. I don't think it's because there's evil people at the top of our society. But I think if you say the only thing that matters, the only principle that matters in this world is maximising your profits. Um, and, that, and, and by the way, we will allow you to pass on as many costs as you can to the rest of us, to the rest of society. I don't think it's a big surprise that you're going to end up with a world that looks like um, the world that we live in today. I think putting a price on nature is exactly the wrong way to go. It is simply further commodifying, further marketizing those things that we should actually be uncommoditizing, uncommodifying and unmarketizing. I think six years after the financial crisis, I would say not only should the environment not be run as a bank, but a bank shouldn't be run as a bank. And I think an awful lot of people, if you read the newspapers today, would probably agree with that, um, that analysis. I would like to stop seeing everything in the world as a commodity to make money off. And I don't think that is a pipe dream. And the reason I don't think it's a pipe dream is because we've done it. As a society, after the Second World War, we decided the best way to give people decent health care was not to put a price on it, but to take a price off it. To run it as a social good with different principles from the principles applied by the market. And that's what I would argue is the solution to the environmental crisis that we face today and many other social crises as well. That's the only way to radically reduce the inequality um, and the turbocharged market mechanism which has really driven the planet um, to the brink of um, catastrophe. Thank you, Nick. Nick, um, concerned with social justice, I mean, one of the things which I'm sure you wouldn't deny is that the record, the global record in bringing people out of absolute poverty over the last 20 years has been pretty... Uh, impressive. I mean, unprecedented in human history, the number of people who've been taken out of absolute poverty. Do you think that that progress in terms of rising living standards at the very poorest level can happen without the engine of global capitalism? Certainly, I think it can happen without capitalism. Whether it can happen without growth is a different, is a different matter, but I certainly think it can happen without, without capitalism because the vast majority of the people who've been lifted out of poverty in the last 20 years were lifted out of poverty in China. Now, I'm not saying China is a non-capitalist country, but it certainly hasn't applied the principles of the free market to, work to the way that it's developed. I'm not saying it's a perfect model. I, there's many problems I've got with the way China's developed. Nonetheless, it has raised more people out of poverty than anywhere else in the world, which should cause us to really question the model that we're constantly expounding as the answer to people's um, the answer to poverty. If you look at how most how most where most of the benefits of growth go at the moment with our Western model of capitalism, they go to the very very top. Since the financial crash in the United States, 95% of all the extra growth that's been created have gone to the top 1%. Virtually everything. That's not a solution for getting people out of poverty or for um, creating a more sustainable uh, environment. Okay, great. One last question, panel. If you can be really brief, because then I want to bring the audience back in. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with an even more kind of pessimistic perspective, which is this. I mean, we, we, we think of Europe as being a kind of reasonably functioning part of the world, but we can't sort out Ukraine, we can't sort out what's going on in Greece. It isn't one of the massive barriers to action here, the weakness of global governance uh, institutions? Because action is required. 
obviously in terms of climate change, but also in terms of conservancy, where sometimes you're trying to raise money in one country to persuade another country, which is developing, to protect a bit uh, of, of, of its own ecosystem. Jeremy, you're, you're broadly confident, but how does your confidence stand up to the weakness of, of global action? Well, the work we did, and this report, which you referred to earlier, called Better Growth, Better Climate, produced by the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate, um, took the line that we couldn't rely on global governance, right? that relying on the international institutions as the driver of change in terms of economic policy that would need to then feed into both better economic outcomes and better climate, but more broadly environmental outcomes, we could not rely on those international institutions. And so what we did was we looked very carefully at national policy. What would be in countries' economic and social self-interest irrespective of what other countries chose to do. And what we find, and the work of the Commission, was that in low-income and middle and high-income countries, irrespective of choices that other countries might make, it turns out to be in the interests of those countries to take coherent action, to improve economic policy, to actually build better cities, which have less pollution and less congestion and generate less carbon emissions, to... In, Peter's world, apply better approaches to land use because it's getting land use right that drives productivity, that protects water resources, that protects forests, that protects soil. This doesn't need a global agreement. This requires local action and local understanding. And the same is true for energy systems. So for us, the key to this is to get the understandings and actions at the local level and to get the politics and policy right there. Because if we don't do that, the chance of getting it at the global level is zero. Tony, do you agree with that? Yes, I, I do broadly. And I just add that most of the outcomes that occur pretty much anywhere at nation, state level or even a city, they are down to economic choices. And if we can't build ecological capacities into how we do economics we're always going to be failing because there's always this balancing act going on. On the one hand, we want economic growth. On the other, we want to conserve nature. Whichever country you look at, pretty much at the moment, economic growth is always the heavier part of the equation and skews decisions to the point where we see all these trends continuing. The reason for this is because nature is completely invisible on, on the calculations that are being made by the economists. And you know, if you start to look at some of the calculations being done for countries, including this one, for example... We had the Office for National Statistics recently publish some material suggesting that elements of natural capital in this country are worth about £1.5 trillion, which is equivalent to the fiscal deficit. You never hear the depletion of our natural capital being talked about because it's not being debated as part of economic policy. It's nature, it's ecology, it's somewhere else. It's not to do with mainstream issues. And so until we can, cl until we can close that gap, I fear that we won't be seeing reality as it truly is, whereby we're losing wealth, we're degrading systems that we fundamentally rely upon because they're nowhere to be seen at the real decision-making table, which is in treasuries, in finance ministries, and in those departments that are trying to drive economic growth. And in fact, this is where actually I think something is being overlooked by the more radical end of, of the campaigning spectrum here, because this discussion that's now opening up the idea of natural capital, I think offers an opportunity for campaigners to do what they've been doing, trying to do for some years, which is to have a more realistic approach towards economic valuation. 
Because at the moment, all we measure is GDP. We're not measuring human happiness. We're not measuring the state of nature. If we do start to get some real metrics that have got real weight and real technical expertise behind them, I think we could start to have a much more interesting discussion around the kind of economy we want. It's a bit of a Trojan horse in many respects. Lucy, it's kind of going back to the fashion industry that you've looked at. You know, our clothes come from all around the world. Young people travel all around the world. But yet our imaginations still seem to be incredibly parochial in terms of our kind of span of responsibility for the well-being of other people. Do you see any kind of change at all in that? No, and that's one of the things, isn't it, that makes it very difficult, uh, increasingly it seems, for people to engage with habitats on the other side of the world and to engage with wilderness areas or whatever you want to call them that they have no experience of them and there's quite a lot of evidence that shows that people are becoming more divorced from from nature and I think it's very easy for us to be uh, hoodwinked and satiated by other things so I do worry very uh, really strongly that we have a generation growing up that's got access to cheap tech cheap cheap food and cheap clothes and being robbed of uh, of of things that that's should sustain it and are for the long term. I think that's absolutely one of the fundamental points over all of this is that 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 is that is what I what is seems to me is is happening. I just wanted to say something about um the happiness index GDP. I don't I've tried that story so many times Tony. I don't think anyone's ever uh, it gets a few news stories uh, about Bhutan being the happiest you know country in the world. And then I just don't think I don't think it's got legs. We'll come back to happiness later on, as I often say to my wife. Um, okay, uh, Old jokes are the best, aren't they? Uh, um, <laughs> Nick, Nick and Peter, can I, can I, can I end with, before we open up, uh, just something for you. I mean, Peter, you, I think Nature Conservancy works to a certain extent with uh, foundations and philanthropists, and it seems to me that that they are a group that are starting to do see things on an international uh, scale. They are amongst the only organisations and people who have a kind of truly global lens. Is that what your... Is your work encouraging in the sense of a, of a kind of group of people who are starting to see things on a global scale? Well, I think a lot of people see things at a global scale. Now, it's not just climate change. Think about water and, and soil. You know, we're, we're losing soil at ten times the rate we're replenishing it. That's increasingly known by the food production uh, world, and food is a global commodity. And, and so there is concern uh, about being able to maintain food security unless we, we do do the natural capital. It's the, it's, the, it's the risk to our food supply by mismanaging our ecosystem. That's the whole point of the natural capital project is to put those numbers on it as Tony is talking about, and water is another thing. I think sometimes we, climate is, the, is a wicked problem, and it's hard for us to see the feedbacks on climate in our lifetime. It's a lot easier to see the feedbacks on soil and water in five years. And in some cases, those will be the, the, the levers and the, the, the sort of the, the, the dimensions of natural capital that will create the most rapid valuation and sort of so valuation of nature. And then, Nick, finally, you before we open it up. 
I mean, it, I, I do worry about the capacity of nation states to be able to be, to be benign actors on the global scale because of the nature of uh, the argument about kind of national self-interest. But some people argue it's actually global corporations and global NGOs who are the most capable of having a kind of grown-up conversation about this. In Germany, there's a campaign for remunicipalization, could do with a better name, but remunicipalization yes, of, of energy... <laughs> I don't know yeah, what, what is it in German. German. <laughs> of energy services. And what they're saying, and we could say it here, what they're saying is energy companies have run... Uh, energy systems, energy resources, in a completely unhelpful way, socially and environmentally. And we want to take them over because we think we as people could run them better, not for profit, to help the environment and more equitably so we don't have pensioners who have to charge, uh, change, uh, who have to decide between eating and, and, uh, and warming their houses. And it's, it's working. I mean, they're taking over energy resources. We could do that here too, but we can't do it by pretending that we all just have to worry about our investment and risks and other, and other financial language. Okay, no, I'm going to bring the audience in uh, uh, now. So uh, ask your questions, uh, make your points. There's a hand up immediately uh, here. So uh, here comes the mic. Thank you. Um, very briefly, there's a saying that a cynic is someone who knows the, uh, value, uh, the price of everything but the value of nothing. And I think we're getting values and prices confused here. Nature gives us value in so many different things, but to reduce it down to one price isn't even theoretically possible, let alone practically possible. You can't compare a dollar from a rainforest to a dollar from a fish to a dollar of somebody's life. Um, I don't think that's sort of really coming across in the debate. It seems to me that if you want capitalism to do the right thing, then we need an environmental movement that actually can do its job properly. Uh, and the reason that we haven't priced nature in its multiple forms or put the right regulations or policies in place is because the environmental movement has failed. Right? If the environmental movement had been successful, right, it would have influenced consumers. And I do want to take issue uh, with Nick. I mean, the idea that poor people right, aren't consumers and aren't investors demonstrates that you have very little understanding of the lives of poor people. people right? the because they do, do exactly the both. Investors. They invest in their homes, they invest in their small holdings, they, they invest, Nick, wait, they wait, invest wait, day wait. in, Just day out, and they make small decisions Rubbish. that wouldn't feel like investment to you. But I guarantee you, as someone who spent many years in developing countries, that they feel like investments to the, to the poorest people on the planet. Um, but maybe not to you. So, so I think that the problem in all of this lies with the failure of the environmental movement to make its case effectively. Okay. Glad to see we're moving towards consensus. Um, Tony, that sounds like your failure. Well, um, it does, doesn't it? Uh, now we so many years on this. Um, however, I have to say, um, when history looks back on the fate of the world in 100 years' time and global capitalism has destroyed the planet it depends upon... I wonder who will have judged to have failed, whether it will be the environmentalists or the capitalists. That's one for the future. Hopefully it will be neither, because we will, in fact, have sorted out this question of value that was raised uh, a moment ago and begun to understand the full contribution that is being made by natural systems to human well-being, including the process of economic development. And I think this is where environmentalists um, across the spectrum need to ask very carefully where they stand on this subject because we are quite polarised at the moment and I think the polarisation is coming around a misunderstanding between these concepts of price and value and I think the, the, the question a second ago touched on this uh, very well. Price is about a transaction that occurs in the market. Value is about something's, something's contribution. It's aesthetic, 
its intrinsic, its spiritual contribution, and indeed its practical and economic side. And the environmentalists have been very good so far and have succeeded in making the aesthetic, spiritual, and intrinsic case. What we've not done yet is make the economic case properly, and that's where I think we need to be focusing over the coming years. And if we do this successfully... That value isn't necessarily protected or maintained through markets. Very often it's regulation that's required to protect that value. And so, you know, last year we had a big debate about bumblebees in this country. Are neonicotinoid pesticides killing them? Yes, they are very likely. Um, Is that a problem? Well, bees are very beautiful, but also happen to be vital for food security. And once that practical point came across we had a political reaction in the form of a European ban on those pesticides. We didn't need a bee market, but the fact that the bees were understood to be delivering value changed the politics, and I think that's what we need to do more of in the years ahead. Peter? So I I want to take on the the questions about reducing to one price and also working with the, the manager, the people actually in the factory. As I mentioned before in the introduction, I've been involved with over two dozen projects in the field. In those projects, we've hired dozens of economists. We've never been asked, not once, been asked to reduce it to one price. Never. And this includes uh, national governments, city governments, uh, regional agencies, and corporations. We do put prices on the loss of water quality, on water treatment, on flood control, on risk mitigation. But we don't wrap it up in a $1 value. People are more sophisticated than that. But the fact that we put a price on it gets the Ministry of Finance at the table with us and not just the Minister of Environment, which is important. And the fact that we put a price on it gives the different, actually gives voice to different stakeholders. It actually gives voice to the farmers who lose the irrigation water, and we put a price on that loss to irrigation water as opposed to the city that might take the water. So I, even, it often gets talked about like there's just going to be $1 value at the bottom of this sheet, and it's going to do it all. In practice, that isn't it. The manager question, and what really happens in, in corporations, is very astute because we have a partnership with Dow. George, uh, with Liveris is, a, is a, one of these corporate leaders that pronounces very much about sustainability. But we work at the factory level. And at the factory level, the, 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 the trick is to have easy tools. To make, nobody wants their job to be harder. And if we can make it scientifically credible and easy for them to look at their practices, their choices about whether they protect a marsh or build a levee, you know, whether they protect a hardwood forest for water control or, or do water treatment. So those choices, if we can make it easy for them to think about those choices, uh, they will pick it up. But it, it can't just, that's the whole point of hiring these software engineers and making it software that people can actually interact with and test, to really mainstreaming it to everyday business decisions and not just to the speeches of a CIO, a CEO. So I think it can work, but it takes an extra step. Lucy, can you, can you see a way through what is emerging as a kind of fault line in the room? I mean, it feels to no. me as though... The public, I mean, most of the public would like an excuse not to have to worry about this. And the fact that the people who say they care about the environment fundament, so fundamentally disagree about what needs to be done gives us all a, a way out, doesn't it? Possibly. I think most, I think a, a huge amount of people would like 
a way forward that they believe is going to bring some substantive change. I think rather than trying to shirk the issue, I just wanted to um, talk about this lady made a couple of points about um, outsourcing and uh, sort of touched on philanthropy. So we see these big brands that sort of made their money and then are doing good projects. Mm -hmm. And that makes me very uncomfortable um, that I think this is a sort of slide towards this, you know, make as much money, you know, rape the resources as as, as you will and then you can put, you know, some of your profits you can put into a nice little uh, environmental project. I think that's an incredibly troubling um, way to go down. But I think that, um, you know, I don't think we're short on corporate leadership and corporate speeches. And I'm always hearing, you know, brilliant sustainability speeches from CEOs. I think we've got loads and loads of those. But I think that there's, there's just a real essential problem that businesses are not in a position to do certain things, either at home or abroad. And as this lady again pointed out, so much is outsourced. So much of our environmental impact is outsourced, most of it, actually. And we have these corporations who do not own the factories that stuff is built in, and therefore they don't have to take responsibility so there's so many loopholes for them. Businesses are not good. It's not their place to talk about overpopulation or birth control in a country. It's not, it's not and it would, it, wouldn't be, it would be completely unseemly for them to do so. So I have a real issue with businesses operating and speaking on certain issues. In Bangladesh, for example, which I've looked at a lot to do with fast fashion, there's a big wage debate, and we hear these fast fashion brands constantly say, well, we can't up our wages because then a garment worker would be getting more than a policeman. You know, who are they to be setting these kind of limits? And yet, on other issues, they stay silent. So I think that, again, it comes back to trust, and I don't think that we can trust corporations to make these sort of decisions for us. And maybe the environmental movement has been weak, and I'd say where they have been weak is in appeasing business and not standing up for environmentalism for its own sake, in its own language, without reverting to the language of corporations. Nick? Oh, yeah. Well, you don't even need me because that was brilliant. I, I, okay. to- I totally so, agree. But on this issue of pricing nature, I would like to say something on this issue of pricing nature because I think Tony's right. We've got to come down on one side or another, and I am firmly against this. And I think it's... First of all, I think it's theoretically just crazy. I mean, there are actually people working in the British government now who think it's possible to put prices on, like, you know, the amount of time um, that it, it would the, the amount of time um, that we've got before such and such a thing degrades um, on aesthetic values. How on earth can you put a price on aesthetic values? It's just, I think, completely ridiculous. Apart from being very dangerous um, in terms of reinforcing the notion that we're all consumers and investors and so on. But I would go beyond that because it's not just. I just think that's crazy and isn't going to work. So it doesn't really bother me. Um, but the thing that I do think is dangerous is Tony said we never asked for a B market. Well, I tell you, you're going to get markets in nature because they're already being set up. Biodiversity offset markets are already being set up. We already have carbon markets that, by the way, have been a complete disaster in terms of pouring funds into fossil fuel companies while we oversee a world um, that continues heating up. I mean, just an unbelievable disaster. There are biodiversity offset markets being set up now, which will allow companies to go on mining and go on doing all the damaging thing they're doing, and then give some money, and then somewhere else you can, you can preserve some species that presumably, I don't know how you're going to create species, but you can preserve some species that are, that are presumably 
presumably of a similar value. I mean, I, I think Amnesty International should set up a human rights offset market so that a dictator um, in some country somewhere can torture somebody and then pay, and somewhere else we can run a nice human rights centre. It, li- it really is at that level of ridiculousness, and I think we've really got to kill this idea that this is the way to save the environment. Right. Hi. Um, my question is to Nick, really. Um, I'm quite disappointed in terms of um, your stance or your, your view that as consumers, as Joe Bloggs, we don't really have any power to change um, what is actually happening to our environment, our world. We don't want to be backseat participants to this stuff. Um, so my question really is, what, what actually is your practical approach and what part can we actually take in making a change? And we can't trust the CEOs um, to make this change. We want to make this change. Um, if you don't believe we have a place, what, what actually is our place? I mean, look, if you have a choice as a consumer and you can buy something really awful or something a bit better, buy something a bit better, obviously. If I can buy a fair trade banana, I'll buy a fair trade banana. But I'm not under any illusion, and I wouldn't think anybody is, that that's going to radically change the world. What we have to do is stop thinking about ourselves as consumers and start thinking about ourselves as citizens. Um, We don't have to just live in this world in the way that it is presented to us at this point in time. And indeed, we haven't done. After the Second World War, we decided many, many things should not be controlled by the market. And that happened through people power. It's happened in Latin America over the last 15 years. Uh, A woman up there talked about Mother Earth. That's now enshrined in constitutions in Latin American countries, where, by the way, ownership has moved from big business to cooperatives, um, to the social sector, um, where people are re-engaging in democracy. It's, It's sad to me that people think the first thing we think about is what we can do as a consumer. Why should big business be accountable to anybody in this room? And let me tell you, it isn't. It's not accountable to you at all. It's about making money. That's what it has to do in law. So that's what it's going to do. We need to take power back from big business. And we can do it. And it's happening in Germany. It's happening in Latin America. It happened in Greece last weekend. And we have to uh, give solidarity to those movements that are reclaiming it and start reclaiming it here. 68% of people in a recent opinion poll thought energy companies should be renationalized, yet no political party has it on the agenda. We have to force it onto the agenda in the way that they're doing in Germany because they don't represent us, so we have to represent ourselves. One thing you want people... Oh. One concrete thing you want people to do? There's no one thing. You have to change. You have to... Okay. Taking power can't be done by change one, itself. one thing. Change itself. Yeah, okay. Got it. Absolutely. Lucy. Um, I'd like to um, respond to your question about if you were going to reinvent or start a business or you're an entrepreneur, what, is, what are the core things that you should do? And I think the first thing that you do is make a commitment from the start not to grow too big because I don't believe that constant expansion... Sorry to keep going back to fashion. Fast fashion brand last week... Um, Uh, revealed it had opened 400 new stores in the first quarter of the year. You know, and it's this constant expansion, which means it then has to go into other territories to source uh, cotton, for example, moving into Ethiopia, moving into Myanmar. And actually, what's happening is we're not seeing a new strategy, a new business strategy. It's all predicated on growth, opening more, producing more inventory. And that is completely incompatible with being an environmental, socially just, ecological, sustainable business. So the first thing that you have to commit to is that you're going to have a certain cap, that you're not going to grow and you have to understand where, where, your, where your cap would be. So I think that's the first thing. I think in terms of one thing, I agree with Nick, it's really hard to go, give one specific point. I would say do something just to disconnect 
from the cheap food, the cheap tech. The, what was the other thing that I said before? I can't remember. No, it was listening. Cheap fashion. Oh, my God, I forgot fashion. <laughs> weird, weird. My brain's oh, short-circuiting. Mm. Um, is, is to disconnect from that. Do something for yourself. Make something. Knit something. Do your compost. Do something just to disconnect from these global corporations, even if it's just one thing, and just examine what you can do for yourself. Great. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> Jeremy, perhaps, perhaps McKinsey ought to hire a shaman. That occurs to me as a, <laughs> uh, as a radical step that you might want to take. Uh, Jeremy, over to you. I thought we'd been called the witch doctors in, you have in been various books, so it would be uh, not entirely inappropriate. Um, the... Um, <laughs> Uh, so um, I'm not sure how to answer the questions other than, or any of them other than to agree with the, the observation that it's not that we can delegate being stewards for nature to the civil service or to corporations or to, or to the NGOs. I think we all have to play our role within that. I'm going to end with kind of just a couple of observations. One is I am a bit more optimistic than others on the panel. It's not because I think we've cracked it, but I don't give up on young people I don't think that they are hopeless, irresponsible, disconnected and unthinking. I think young people will be the, the generation who, who will take much of this on and we have to help them. Those of us that do have positions of power and everybody on this panel in one way or another has those positions. So it's our job to get on and, and support the young people that want to come through and build the new businesses on different principles. I'm also a bit more optimistic about um, poor people. Uh, I don't think of them as helpless victims, and I don't think any of us should do, but I think we should have this conversation with a Rawlsian point of view about kind of, you know, where we stand in the world, right? We have no clue on the whole what it means to be truly poor and the choices, both consumer and investor, that those poor people make and how they incorporate environment into their lives. And that will decide and determine to a very large extent how the story really plays out because it will be in the developing world where nature is both most at risk, um, most work needs to be done and most support needs to be provided, that this debate will either land in a good way or not. Um, so that's, that's where, for me, this whole agenda ends up. And if I had one thing to do, um, and I'm sorry if it sounds like a being, being kind of beating a drum, it is that I don't think the environmental movement is doing its job properly. I think there are exceptions, and I'm delighted to be next to Peter, actually, because I think what TNC is trying to do is exactly right. It's trying to combine an approach to environmental conservation with an understanding of, of development, how do poor people live and how will they develop, and how do we use different mechanisms, different forms of innovation, including pricing, which is very sophisticated. Anyone who thinks it's one price has no clue about how markets work, not a single clue. So, so let's embrace the sophistication of the very complex institutions that we have that are called markets and bring them to bear in a thoughtful, intelligent, wise, um, humane way that also recognizes that we can't price everything and get these things <coughs> to work. Right? So that's our job, to get the environmental movement to step up, to do its job much better right? if we want to have a hope of bringing nature and capitalism together. Okay, so these are radical... Um... 
so far we have smash the system, take up knitting, uh, leave Greenpeace. Um, two more bids for what you need to do as you leave the room. Tony. We were reminded a moment ago that there is a general election coming very soon, and there was a point raised up here about proposals for a Nature and Wellbeing Act. I would say that this is a huge opportunity that we have in the months ahead and indeed the years after the election to have game-changing legislation and policy in this country. The Nature and Wellbeing Act is presently not supported by the main parties. The Green Party have adopted it as their policy. That's very good. But we need to get this higher on the agenda in the run-up to the general election. What would be in a Nature and Wellbeing Act? The headline is the restoration of nature in a generation. So in 25 years, to restore nature in this country. Bear in mind that this was the first place to properly industrialise. We began deforesting and destroying natural systems in this country literally thousands of years ago. We really got going a couple of hundred years ago, and we showed the world how to destroy nature for the name of economic growth. I think it would be very inspiring for the entire world, for the home of industrialisation to be the place where we say, actually, we can do things differently. We can restore nature at the same time as looking after people, rebuilding our economy and delivering lots of very, very good things for people. Clean, secure water, food security, better health, carbon capture, fecund seas, a better tourism industry. All these things would come on the back of doing that job properly. That's the headline. Beneath the headline is the idea of rebuilding green infrastructure. So all those things that nature provides for us, let's explicitly put them back into good shape in the process, for example, saving our National Health Service billions of pounds per year. Let's change the education system, the point about reconnection from the lady up here. We have lost touch with nature. This is why this discussion is so abstract for so many people. We are embedded in nature. Without nature, there is nothing else for humankind. We need to rebuild that connection, and we can do it through the education system. And then I would also say in that Nature and Wellbeing Act, we need a fuller understanding of the economic contribution coming from nature, and we need something like the Climate Change Committee, which we have in this country, which monitors policy, it looks at the state of our emissions, it advises government, we need that on nature too. And as somebody who played a role at Friends of the Earth in making the case for the Climate Change Act back in 2008, which led the world, it was the first national framework to set a scientific long-term target to reduce CO2 emissions, I would tell you that it can happen, even if it's not on the agenda yet. And that brings me back to Nick's point about being citizens. Because we all get to vote, those of us who are British in this room, in the next couple of months, the action to take out of here is to demand that all the parties who are candidates where you will vote, that they adopt a Nature and Wellbeing Act as part of their manifestos. Thank you. Thank you. The main point in Last, here as well. Follow, uh, <laughs> Peter, you have the unenviable task of following that. I'll be mild. Um, uh, at first, you know, the remark that we're, that, uh, we're all right is certainly true. I mean, the, the environment movement is only going to succeed if it, has, if it has government regulation, if it has corporations, and if it has people as individuals in public and social. It's sort of the three pillars. And at different groups emphasize different things, so we're, we're all right. I am much more optimistic for... By, you know, by direct personal experience. You know. First of all, all consumer movements haven't failed. 30 years ago, we killed 7 million dolphins every year to get tuna. Now we kill less than 6,000 dolphins every year to get tuna. That was a consumer movement. 
Dolphin Save Tuna. And, you know, I, I teach every year. I'm not supposed to, but I teach a class every year. My boss sort of knows. But <laughs> consistently kids come up to me after they're graduating seniors, and they come up and they ask permission to work for companies, the best and the brightest, on the basis of uh, is the company doing environmental good. There really is a value among some of the most talented young people that they actually look where they're working. They look to where they're working, and they want to work for someplace. The smartest programmer I ever saw, the most brilliant kid I ever saw, had worked as an academic and came up to me two years ago and wanted to work for a company and asked permission, like I had to give it to him. And so um, if I was to say one thing you, you would do, this is going to sound uh, wacko, but, but it's my personal thing. So this disconnection is, is, all this is so intellectual and abstract, but I'm trained as an evolutionary biologist. All of you have been on a, on a you know, at a, walked at a street in a dark night and felt something in the back of your neck. Your hair stand up? That's you as prey. <laughs> it is. That's you as prey. You're, you are part of nature. And, and, and I think you would all do much more about it and be much more committed if you went out and just noticed how you felt differently when, by going out and experiencing nature. I know that sounds corny, but go out and experience nature. Take your kids out. Take your friends out. You will physically feel different. And there's more and more science data to show that. And that feeling, I think, can give you the energy to, to do something about it. Because, you know, I love this geeky and this analytical talk and these numbers, but it really takes energy to do anything with government or with corporations or with social movements, and that will give you the energy. That's my one teacher. Thank you. Peter, thank you for that. And I think the one fact people will take back is that tuna fact. So you've left us all with a positive fan. People say, how was it? You, oh, well, it was a bit gloomy, but do you know this thing about the tuna is great? Anyway, so um, I want to say thank you to Nature Conservancy for uh, making this possible. I want to say thank you to Intelligence Squared for making this possible. I want to thank you, but you criticised them, you attacked them. They sat there, they took it, they fought back, and they were brilliant. Please thank our wonderful panel. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligentsquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.